Christ presents the reflection by the Reverend Jean Randall Bodman for the fourth Sunday of Advent, December 19th, 2021. Please pray with me. God of our mothers, Hagar, Sarah, Hannah, and Mary, fold us under the shelter of your wings with all your children of every race and every faith. And may God, who is mercy and mystery, speak words of life, love, and liberation through these words. Amen. My younger son, Jacob, and I were chatting on the phone the other night, and he said, you sound jolly, to which I said, I am jolly. I'm wrapping Christmas presents and watching, no, no, he interrupted, don't tell me. I can guess this one. You're either watching Pride and Prejudice, the BBC one, the one where Jennifer Ailey and Colin Firth play Elizabeth Bennett and Mr. Darcy, or you're watching Sense and Sensibility. He got it in one. I have raised my lacrosse-playing, football-watching boys right. I'm so proud. Of course, this was not really a very big feat on Jacob's part, because I do watch those movies every year while wrapping or baking or decorating. Because, hey, if Die Hard can be considered a Christmas movie for some, and if others can plunge headlong into a month of Christmas movies made by Hallmark, I can watch, I can turn back to Jane Austen year after year. You do your tradition, I'll do mine. This year, as I was watching Sense and Sensibility for approximately the one millionth time, one brief exchange, a couple of phrases really, stuck with me. It comes about halfway through the movie when Emma Thompson's character, Eleanor, learns the history of their new neighbor and friend, Colonel Brandon, from the kind-hearted but gossiping Mrs. Jennings. He had a tragic history, she says. He loved a girl once, a ward of his family, but they were not permitted to marry. Eliza was poor. When the family discovered their relationship, Eliza was flung out of the house, and he was packed off into the army and sent overseas, heartbroken. What became of the lady, Eleanor asked. She disappeared from all good society. In this case, the woman in question, Eliza, was really just part of the backstory of our leading character. Her story was almost an aside to explain the slightly morose, introspective nature of the impressive Colonel Brandon. But that interchange, what became of the lady? She disappeared from all good society. Reminded me of the way narratives of even the most important female characters can get lost. Dropped either from the text altogether or from the tradition and the way the tradition uses the texts. And indeed, it echoes what has actually happened across history to women whose childbearing fell outside societal norms and expectations. This Advent, we have been following a women's lectionary for the whole church, reading texts of annunciations, 
to Hagar, Sarah and Abraham, to Hannah, the mother of Samuel, and of course, to Mary. Texts that echo across the centuries and generations. Annunciations of unexpected pregnancies to women in the wrong category. Women who were too old, too barren, too desperate, too alone and unguarded, too young, unmarried, and virginal. Stories of great leaders from a barren or virgin mother were stories that the ancient world loved to tell, both in and outside of the Hebrew scripture. In those traditions, the stories were explained or given as further evidence of the unique and powerful nature of the leader, attestations that they were destined for greatness from before their birth. Isaac, Ishmael, the great prophet and judge, Samuel. The mothers in these experiences, which are there in the text, have been de-emphasized in our Christian tradition, despite the profundity of the spiritual experiences of the women. Even Mary has been largely ignored in the Protestant branch of the Christian world. And it was she I was thinking of especially when I heard that question and answer. What happened to the lady? She disappeared. This is the threat that underlies the story of this betrothed young woman, pregnant before she was married, that she would disappear from what constituted good society in, the first, in first century Palestine, that she would lose her place in the network of family and community which kept people secure. In that time and place, marriages were contracts made between extended families. And in a culture that ran on shame and honor, breach of the betrothal contract would involve shame for the whole family. Theological and science writer Pat Bennett put it this way, virginity was an essential condition, and thus its loss brought shame upon the woman's entire paternal family. In the case of Mary, that the apparent loss occurred during the period of betrothal was doubly shameful because of the significance of this period in the Jewish understanding of the marriage process which took place in two distinct steps." Close quote. The first century Jewish model was much like the modern world's pattern of engagement followed by wedding and marriage. A two-step process, even now. But it had much starker boundaries, and it was played for much higher stakes. The first step, of course, was betrothal. A particular woman and man were set apart for each other. From then on, they were considered legally and spiritually fully married. If the relationship ended during this period, a divorce was required to end the contract. But it was only after the second step, the ceremony that formalized the marriage contract, that the couple lived together as spouses. At the time of Jesus' birth, these two steps were separated by a significant amount of time, a time that was considered essential to create the spiritual connection between the husband and wife that would be the foundation for their future life. 
we're talking about a world where there was no dating. <laughs> Women were married quite young, and so this was a period that was important in the formation of the couple. It's this term betrothal that the prophet Hosea used when he talks about the relationship between God and God's people, betrothed to one another, promised to one another. The importance of the time of betrothal is also attested in the law and in the commentary on the Hebrew scripture. In the law, punishment for breaking the contract of betrothal is described. It's very harsh. There is no historical evidence that the harshest of those penalties, stoning, ever actually took place. But the fact that it is written into the law means that it is hanging in the air. It means that this is taken with a depth and a seriousness that we have no parallel for in our experience of engagement. The commentary on the text, the Mishnah, claimed that adultery during the betrothal period was even more serious than adultery after marriage. So Mary, betrothed, but merely betrothed, and now pregnant, was in a terribly vulnerable position. As Professor Gaffney has written, the shame of her pregnancy would, it ha would have made it unlikely for her ever to marry. She would be both socially and economically vulnerable, relegated to the margins of society. She would have disappeared from all good society. And Joseph was also in an untenable position. Now, setting aside the questions that some of you may have about whether these stories are historically accurate, let's set those aside because they're not the most interesting question. The most interesting question, the one I wonder about over and over is, what truth do these stories bring to us? Why have they been preserved for us? I think it may be that Jesus, who came to upend our ideas about who is worthy and who should be called blessed, was born to parents who both walked the same path of upending expectations. Mary, in her courage to say yes, yes, to claim the promise of God that her pregnancy was a holy one, and to announce that this pregnancy was a sign of God's saving act in the world. As Rachel Held Evans so eloquently wrote, with the Magnificat, Mary not only announces a birth, she announces the inauguration of a new kingdom, one that stands in stark contrast to every other kingdom, past, present, or future. Kingdoms that rely on violence and exploitation to achieve their greatness. With the Magnificat, Mary declares that God has indeed chosen sides. It's not with the powerful, but with the humble. It's not with the rich, but with the poor. It's not with the occupying force, but with the people on the margins. It's not with narcissistic kings, but with an unwed, unbelieved teenage girl entrusted with the holy task of birthing, nursing, and nurturing God. This is the stunning claim of the incarnation. God has made a home among the very people the world casts aside. 
And in her defiant prayer, Mary, a dark-skinned woman, a refugee, a religious minority in an occupied land, names and claims this promise. Joseph, the human father who raised Jesus, acted against cultural expectation also. First, in his decision to pause before just reacting. Even before his dream, Joseph was willing to act outside what was expected, outside what was considered a normal, appropriate response in such a situation. He did not fly off the handle, denounce her, and cast her out, which he certainly could have. He deliberated. He chose carefully and found a way forward, an alternative way that would preserve the honor of both families, his and hers, and would protect the life of Mary and her unborn child. We should imagine Joseph lying in bed, not tossing and turning before falling into a fevered sleep, but instead turning everything over and over in his mind and gradually reaching a place where his initial anger and incredulity no longer drove his response, a place where he is able to reflect on and actively choose another course of action. It sounds like centuries before Valerie Kaur gave us language to describe it, he paused and got curious about what could happen next. And Joseph did more than take the, high, the moral high ground of divorcing Mary secretly. And maybe it was the fact that he had paused to seek a less destructive, a more generous path than the one dictated by social and religious convention. Maybe it was this very pause that allowed him to hear the angelic message, calling him in his dream to marry Mary, to marry her and to be a father to Joseph, to act with truly revolutionary love. A few days ago, I was discussing music for Christmas Eve with um, Kathy Walden and Maggie, who are going to come and play the prelude for us. And they were asking what I was looking for, what tone of music I wanted. And I said, comfort. We need comfort. I'm so aware of how fragile the world feels right now, how many of us have friends or family or self facing difficult diagnoses or losses, how precarious our democracy feels in the face of ongoing efforts to curtail access to voting, how frightening the world of social media is and all media with so much dishonesty and vitriol the threat, of course, to the whole world because of the climate crisis and COVID hanging over us, all of this makes me want to just seek comfort and to offer comfort. To see this as a time for nesting in cozy places with a fire and all the people we love best drawn in close to us. And I am here for all of that, the warmth and the coziness and the beloved ones. Caleb arrived home last night and Jacob arrives home tonight, and I'm delighted. Warmth and coziness and simple pleasures are respite in a world that is frightening and confusing, and they are good. But there is also a danger 
in allowing our experience of Christmas to offer us only what is gentle and comforting, or even dangerously sliding over into the sentimental. There's a danger in casting the whole scene in soft colors and tenderness alone. Because Christmas is much better news than that. It's more and deeper and bigger than just tender comfort. Christmas is an invitation to follow Joseph in choosing to ignore the demands of propriety and to stay open to the path of revolutionary love, to deep care, open enough that we can hear the voice of a divine messenger calling us to fearless love and enabling us to follow in self-forgetting trust. Christmas is a call for us to listen to what is being announced to us now in our time. A call to notice, with Nadia Boltz-Weber, that the angel did not say to her, Hail Mary, full of virtue. The angel said, Hail Mary, full of grace. We are called to believe with Mary that God's grace extends to us, that we will be given grace to act. It's a call to question what we think we hear, just as Mary did with the angel. And it's a call to join Mary in her stubborn, unsentimental hope, the hope of a woman so convinced that the baby inside her would change everything that she proclaimed in the present tense that the great reversal has already arrived. The powerful have already been humbled. The vulnerable have already been lifted up. For God has made a home among the people. God has made a home with us. This is indeed good news of great joy to carry us forward. Amen. Listen, listen.